while we slept, while we thought the world was just fine, what was actually happening was a tremendous distortion of the production structures. Today I sit down with Jeffrey Tucker, the Epoch Times senior economics columnist and founder and president of the Brownstone Institute. The settled ideological systems of 2019 and the previous 50 years don't really serve as very good prisms to understand the present world. We discuss the long-term impacts of COVID interventions on the economy, the incentives and ideologies driving them, and what the future holds. Savings rates are rock bottom, credit cards super high, people are taking on uh, second and third jobs, and Washington's calling this job creation. The slogan, go woke, go broke, is really coming to life. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kelleck. Jeffrey Tucker, so good to have you back on American Thought Leaders. It's a pleasure to be here, Jan. Thank you. Well, Jeffrey, I want to highlight to folks that uh, you have a column at the Epoch Times now, five days a week, as our senior economics columnist, which has frankly taught me incredible amounts in this field, which frankly isn't my specialty. Mm. And you have this incredible ability to, to simplify um, um, these extremely big things that are happening today. For example, inflation. We know there was, you know, incredible spending that happened over the last few years. So, you know, you would expect inflation, but we're told all sorts of different things. So thankfully we have Jeffrey Tucker to help us understand this, right. this whole reality. Right. Um, well, you know, I, I've, I've begun to think of the Federal Reserve as sort of the CDC for money. <laughs> They're doing just as bad a job at managing the nation's money stock as the CDC did in managing a pathogen. You know? They always pretend as if they're in, in control of everything, but uh, it turns out uh, they're not. So after the pandemic hit and the lockdowns began, uh, Congress began to spend lots of money and the Treasury created the debt and the Federal Reserve stepped up and bought the debt and uh, created more than $6 trillion over two years uh, to, to feed this machine. I, I, I can't, what, is six, what does $6 trillion look like? Yeah, it's right? really I don't know. big, I mean, have to, right? Yeah, stack, know, stack it up to the moon or something. I don't know what it is. It's a lot of money. And, and we've never seen inflation uh, of that sort. Well, what I mean by the, in this case of inflation is money creation at that rate, right? So it peaked at 26% per annum. You know, that's how much money they are creating uh, to, to feed this lockdown machine. I mean, it was just an astonishing thing. And there's no way it ever could have happened without, without the power of the Federal Reserve to do this. You know, if you have a, a, a money printer in the basement, you can, you can fund anything, you know, and, and that's what they did. And I just don't know if they didn't anticipate that this is going to cause a problem or not. I mean, they, they, they did something very similar in 2008 with, with the financial crisis where they created a lot of money. They called it quantitative easing. But in that case, they incentivized the banks not to lend out the money uh, because they were paying a higher rate of interest to hold the money at the Fed than the markets would bear in the lending market. So the money stayed basically in cold storage. So it didn't cause inflation. In the case of 2020 and 2021, they did the opposite. They just rained it down on the population. I mean, those were weird times. You would just wake up one morning and the Department of Treasury had given you several thousand dollars. I mean, it was just next level crazy. Of course, all this new money they created became very hot on the street and fueled uh, prices. So, and those, the price increases began in uh, the January when Biden took office, you know, and, and in those days they said, well, this is tr- transitory, you know, this is just uh, a, a sort of leftover and it will be, it'll be gone in no time, you'll see. Well, here we are two years later and, and we've, had, we've seen over two years about a 16% increase uh, in, in the price level uh, overall. But of course, it's migrated from sector to sector uh, one day it's eggs, the next day it's lumber, then suddenly energy costs are down, then they're up again, and it keeps moving around. And, and every month, you know, these numbers are coming out, and the reports are always optimistic. Like, well, it seems as if inflation is cooling. It's moderating. It's calming down. Uh, it's being eradicated. We're getting rid of it. But this has gone on for 24 months. And, and the CPI and PPI, which is the Consumer Price Index, and the Producer Price Index, which is actually a very dangerous number, uh, just came in just for, for the December numbers. 
the numbers were terrible. We're starting to see a re-acceleration of inflation. And yet, the national media is not really talking about it. They just pretend as if we're, it's still on its way to decline. I don't know what the purpose of lying like this is, to calm down the population, to keep people from uh, developing high uh, inflationary expectations, something. But one of my jobs for, for Epoch is to look at the data and tell an honest story about it so that we don't just keep living these illusions. Jeffrey, so you've just described inflation to, to my ear as a, almost like a whole bunch of different things, yeah. okay? Yeah. We know that printing money creates inflation. Most mm -hmm. people are aware of this, mm -hmm. but what, what is it? Yeah. What is it? <laughs> well, it's not that complicated. It's, it's, it's a force that drives up pr prices because of the devaluation. Now, uh, it's really important for people to understand uh, the following thing. Uh, people get very confused. Uh, the, when we talk about inflation, we mean the value of the dollar in terms of its purchasing power of goods and services. That is different from its purchasing power in terms of other currencies. So on one hand, you can have a strong dollar in terms of all the other currencies in the world because they're always trading against each other, at the same time as being devalued in terms of, of goods and services. So that's, that's where we are. This confuses people. You know, you'll see two headlines, the dollar's strong, the dollar's weak. Well, which is it? Well, it's, it's strong in terms of other currencies. It's not strong in terms of your ability to, to buy things and services with it. Well, and this is the thing. Most people are noticing that various goods are, have increased in price. Yeah. I mean, so, what does that mean for what they, let's say this hyper and you're, you're describing some sort of hyperinflation based on these two indicators? Yeah, and it's not what does that quite mean? hyperinflation yeah. yet, but it the point is it's reaccelerating. It's not getting better. Now, uh, this is despite the Federal Reserve. This is what I was alluding to earlier about the Fed's pretense of being able to manage this, this, this stuff. So when the inflation began, they said, uh-oh, we better uh, do something about this. So let's raise interest rates. They broke a 15-year pattern of 0%, uh, zero interest rates and began to raise them as a way of sort of su sucking money out of the economy, like sponging up the spill essentially. You know, that's what raising wages is trying to do. And, and sure enough, that has, that has reduced uh, M2, the quantity of money, uh, substantially, but nowhere near enough to cover what they did over the previous th three years in terms of m money printing and money creation. So we're nowhere near solving the problem. Uh, <clears throat> so. $6 trillion created, new money created, and that's got to wash through the economy. It's got to become endemic, to use our, our sort of language of viruses here. It's got to become endemic. The prices have to adjust up. They have to. And it doesn't matter what the Fed does now. Uh, now, the re reduction in, in money supply is probably creating conditions that are going to lead to a kind of a, re uh, a recession of sorts. And we're starting to see the effects of that uh, right now, which we can talk about what that, what that means. But they, they actually don't have the power to, to uh, spare us the consequences of their previous actions. That has to, that has to uh, become endemic in the economy. So the, the price increases we've experienced over the last two years, we're stuck with. And not only are we stuck with the existing price levels, and therefore the lower purchasing power of the dollar, and therefore your lower real incomes, which they've been declining for 20 successive months, um, uh, our ability to buy goods and services at the same price. Uh, we're, we're stuck with that change, but it's getting worse right now. This is despite what the Federal Reserve's doing. The interest rate increases that they've pursued over the last year are historic. We've never seen a Federal Reserve policy uh, turn so dramatically, and that's having a profound effect on the, on the structures of production in the, in the industrial sector right now, but it's not actually fixing the inflation problem. And you know, there's another factor that people don't talk about. It's very interesting. People, lots of people talk about the money supply. Not enough people talk about the money supply, but some people do. What hardly anybody talks about is the so-called velocity 
Now, velocity is the pace at which people are spending the money. Velocity is a major factor in, in driving the inflation rate. So if you have uh, no velocity to the money, it doesn't matter how much you print. It just all, means people are hanging on to it. Yeah, yeah. it just means it's being stuffed in the mattresses and it's not going to drive prices higher. It only starts to drive prices higher when people slid open the mattresses, take the money out and start spending it. So the rate at which money changes hands is called velocity. So uh, much lower velocity levels with higher money creation will not have as big an impact on prices. But if you have a, a money supply that's being reduced, as you have right now, at the same time, velocity is going up, you're going to still, you're going to have inflation. You see what's happening? So it doesn't matter that the Fed is pulling money out of the economy through higher interest rates and a better uh, uh, fixing up the balance sheet of the Federal Reserve and all the things they're doing to fix what they did over the previous two years, three years. Um, because the velocity of, of spending is going up. So if you look at the velocity charts, they fell off a cliff with the, with the pandemic, as typically happens in a crisis. People get scared and they hold on to the money. But as we've come out of the pandemic lockdowns and people are trying to relax, they're starting to spend more. And then, of course, uh, you have to spend more because, they, because the money is worth less which speaks to another issue. You can't trust the retail sales data, by the way. It's never adjusted for inflation, just, which is preposterous, but another subject. But, but now you see the velocity rising, and that's making moot the efforts of the Federal Reserve to, to reduce the, the money supply in terms of its effect on inflation. So now you have velocity of money driving uh, inflation forward. Now, what can the Fed do about velocity? Nothing. They can't do anything about it because that's a reflection of uh, human volition. That's the things we choose to do. The Federal Reserve can't, can't affect that. So once again, you have this kind of pretense of power or a pretense of knowledge on the part of the Fed and a kind of a fake belief that they can manage the system. They can't. They've lost complete control of the system. They just they can't do it. They pretend to be these all-wise managers. Don't worry about it. We've got inflation under control. We'll manage our way out of this pandemic. We'll soft land the economy. No, they can't do any of those things. What happened to that $6 trillion? Yeah. Well, yeah, right? Well, a lot of it went to uh, the, all the programs that they, they, they spent money on, you know, which Congress was authorizing new spending, trillions there, trillion here, PPP and loans for this, and, and direct stimulus payments to businesses and to individuals. And the spending by Congress is just completely, I mean, we've said this for generations, out of control, but we didn't know what out of control really was until the last couple of years. It's, it's just been beyond belief. So uh, it's, it's debt, the, the new money is financing the debt, and the debt is created by virtue of, of the government's, uh, government spending. So it's, it's all waste, and it's not helping us recover. If anything, it's doing the, the opposite. Um, and it's ruining oh, so, our, so what, what do you mean by that exactly? Because yeah. there were, I mean, they, they stopped the economy. I mean, they, were, they slowed it yeah. dramatically, right? So, yeah. this, so the idea was this is supposed to be a stopgap for that, right? People really do need to test um, the, the reality they're experiencing against the common sense. When you shut down an entire economy, that's usually a bad idea. And it's not usually associated with being more prosperous than you've ever been. <laughs> but that's actually what happened, right? We saw uh, real incomes soaring during the lockdowns. And so savings rates went through the roof. And people didn't even have to go to work. I mean, what a wonderful world. We're getting more prosperous, and I don't have to go to work? And, my, and the government's dropping thousands of dollars into my bank account, and I'm able to save things, pay off my student loans, pay off my debts. And this is a wonderful world. Well, it was all too good to be true, of course. And so everything has reversed in the meantime. So savings rates went, I think, went as, they went higher than 30%, you know, at the, at the height of the lockdowns. And now they're down to historic lows. Uh, I don't even think we're approaching 2% in personal savings rates right now. It's just a disaster. Meanwhile, credit card debt is going way up. So you see what's happening, right? So you've, you've got people depleting their savings, uh, spending more for less because the inflation rate is, is going up. Uh, they're starting to panic buy 
and put everything on the credit card debts, except that the credit card interest rates are going higher and higher, you know, eating more of their now declining real income. If you think of a candle burning at both ends, but also getting skinnier, <laughs> that's sort of where we are right now in terms of household finance. But this is, I mean, this is a terrible situation. It's a disaster, and, 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 and what a, I don't know, I called, I've written that it's a head fake, you know, it was like a fake prosperity that we were given during lockdowns, just to kind of make everybody believe that it was perfectly fine for, for the government to lock down uh, the economy and violate everybody's rights and interfere with our freedom of association and religious freedoms and everything else. Don't worry about it because you're getting richer than ever. Well, <clears throat> in the blink of an eye, everything reversed the other way. And all the riches that we gained you know, over 2020 and the stimulus payments of 2021 got eaten up with inflation. And now household finances are, are falling apart, Jan. They really are falling apart. I mean, savings rates are rock bottom. Credit cards super high. People are taking on uh, second and third jobs. And Washington's calling this job creation? Well, sort of. But, you know, is that really a good thing when you have to take a second and third job just to pay your bills around the house? And, and, and the, the labor supply problems are, are, are approaching catastrophic levels. I mean, we have uh, historically low worker-to-population ratios right now. We just lost millions of workers. They just disappeared. And the labor, to, labor participation rates are still nowhere near pre-pandemic levels. And it's particularly affected uh, women and with children uh, in the job marketplace who have just simply not gone back to work. Uh, labor participant, participation rates among women where they're raising where there's children in the family and they're being, is at 1977 levels right now. I mean, we've lost uh, all of these years, uh, nearly 50 years, of what people used to call progress for, for women in the job marketplace. And nobody talks about it. I mean, it's just a complete disaster. Uh, so people, so you've got the Biden administration bragging about low unemployment. But unemployment rate is at 3.4%, a 50-year low. <laughs> a near record. A near record unemployment. Well, what, ha what happened to the millions of people who are dropped out completely of the labor markets? These unemployment numbers only measure the people who are actively looking for jobs. So yeah, if you're out looking for a job, you're going to get one, for sure. may not be the job you want. Not only that, you're probably going to have to get two jobs, even three jobs. And then they call this good news. This is not good. This is weak and awful. People are working themselves to the bone just to earn money. And this money is buying less and less as our rents are going up, our energy bills are going higher, our food bills are going higher. We, we used to be able to uh, 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 say, well, you know, we have to save money. We can't go out to eat as much. Well, food at home right now is, going, is rising in price higher than food at restaurants. So, you know, it's not an obvious choice anymore. So it's like the world doesn't quite make sense. And, you know, I have to ask this, yeah. you know, different states, of course, handled this whole yeah. situation quite differently. Right. Right. There's this kind of complex interplay before between the federal, you know, contribution and then the way the states are actually closed their economies or didn't, you know, notably, you know, places like Florida and the big states or like South Dakota and the smaller ones versus, I don't know, some others, New York and Michigan. So is there diversity among how what you described, it sounds kind of cataclysmic. Is yeah. it the same across the board uh, or is it different? So during the pandemic response and lockdowns and all the upheavals that took place, we saw you know, people fleeing the blue states for the red states and everything. People said, well, if I just get myself to Florida, then everything is going to be fine. Well, it, you're going to be better off for sure, especially with all the capital moving in and all the people moving in. Florida feels a lot more prosperous than Connecticut, for example. That is true. However, there's some things you cannot run away from. We all use the same money. We all use the same dollar. Florida is not avoiding inflation. They can't. So to me, this is a really important lesson. You know, this idea that you're going to flee the chaos. You're going to flee 
as civilization is falling apart and find the right place to be and hide out and be protected. It's not true. When civilization is falling apart, there's no safe place for anyone. Not even Florida is safe. Not even Florida. That's why it matters, right? You can't just, you can't just run away from these things. Let's not just delude ourselves into thinking that there's some magic way we can get away from this thing. Uh, just by moving to Florida, which everybody thinks these days. Everybody wants to be in Florida. And I get it. I mean, I visited Florida recently. It was amazing. People were smiling I'm, <laughs> and happy <laughs> and in good mood. I mean, I couldn't believe it. You don't see that in the Northeast much anymore. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, a, it's a nice place to be. But, but still, the economic effects of the pandemic response are boiling over and affecting everywhere, every, every place. And, and uh, the, the rents are going up, uh, the grocery store price, everything is expensive in Florida right now uh, because of the value of the dollar is declining. Now, uh, it is true that some states avoided really bad economic consequences because they, they didn't lock down nearly as much. One of the best performing states actually turns out to be South Dakota which is the only state in the country that completely ignored all the edicts from the federal government for, from the very beginning. So they've, they've had really great uh, effects. And there have been all sorts of studies done uh, about the, the mitigation measures and what were the effects in two realms, health and in economics. And what, what they've, all these studies have shown is that um, the mitigation measures made no difference in health outcomes nothing measurable anyway, but they caused an economic disaster on labor markets, on capital markets, on the value of the money, on, on every, everything associated with a functioning market economy uh, collapsed in the states that uh, used the heaviest pandemic measures. And the, the shocking thing about this is that the, the planners from the very beginning just simply did not have any interest in talking to economists. It's like we had dictatorship of public health and the economists were just literally, even at the White House, kept in a separate room. We don't want to hear from you. Don't tell us about the stock market. We've got a virus. <laughs> We've got to take care of it. But the economics is about a lot more than the stock market. It affects every aspect of our life. It really does speak to the very heart of the quality of life we live, which is also about health. So all these things are tied. Uh, you can't just separate somehow public health from, from economics. That's a, that's a preposterous idea. This is something that, that your think tank, the Brownstone Institute, yes. of course, is yeah. trying to deal with. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. You know, prior to the pandemic, and we've talked about this before, you were celebrating the American experiment. And actually, to, to some extent, you still are, but in a very different way. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. So let, let's chart that. Yeah. Uh, well, it's, yeah. yeah, thank you for asking the question. It's, it's a difficult thing. I think before the lockdowns, I had found myself in a kind of uh, a trap. G.K. Chesterton would describe it as a trap of being overly optimistic. I, I just, I, I had a very naive view towards, towards business and technology. I wrote a book some years ago called A Beautiful Anarchy which I, I joke about this, and I'm fortunately out of print. <laughs> I'm really glad about that, because in every chapter, I celebrated the glories of big tech. You know, I had this idea that somehow, because now we had technologies to connect people in ways we've never connected, we can communicate, and uh, there's ever more information flows, more connection, more human connection, that we were really building a kind of a utopia gradually. Uh, because as we get more information, uh, humanity would develop uh, a better ability to uh, discern the, uh, the difference between truth and falsehood. I was wrong about that. Uh, but I believed that it was somehow built into the system, that more information, more communication, and then naturally utopia dawns. I mean, that was more or less my... I, I, describing it in a way that sounds preposterous now, but the point is I believed it. <laughs> And, and, uh, and I had a chapter in every one of those books on all these platforms, you know, from LinkedIn to Twitter to Facebook and, and uh, Instagram, and you name it. You know, I, I was convinced that they were going to birth for us a new world of freedom and emancipation from all the tyranny, tyrannical structures of the past. Now, you know, I was, basically, I found myself 
maybe accidentally, but de facto, uh, a sort of techno-utopian. So, so when the lockdowns happened, I got really angry about uh, my story wasn't coming true. <laughs> I, mean, I, I didn't like the lockdowns, not only because they were a, a catastrophe for, for the world, but also because they disturbed me psychologically and intellectually. It was not part of my thinking. I really thought we were better than that. We were supposed to have improved to the point that we wouldn't do such brutal things like, like a medieval-style lockdown. You know, we, would, we, we, were, we had gone beyond that. I had believed. Well, I just made a simple mistake in my head. But I tell you, Jan, it, as I think back at it now, I had to myself go through a, a, a kind of gut-wrenching psychological transformation, an intellectual transformation. And that's what was happening to me. And that's why I was so shattered and upset, because I didn't like seeing my paradigm, my Hegelian structure of history, completely shattered and thrown off course. What was I going to do with myself now, now that nothing I believed was coming true? And then, of course, over, the, over the, these three years have been very instructive because we've learned now that these big technology platforms that I once celebrated as great forces of emancipation became tools of the FBI and the CDC and, and all the ruling classes. And that the, 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 <laughs> the way that big business has played so advanced with big government and big media, it's just absolutely chilling. Uh, I didn't realize that that level of integration was, was possible. And yet there it is. And it's so tight, sometimes it's hard to know which is the hand and which is the glove. I mean, sometimes big business was pushing big government to do things that they otherwise wouldn't have done, you know? And, and big media is pushing big tech and so on. So they, they've, they've just become this big, this cartel. Uh, and it makes it very hard for our old, simple, ideological paradigms to explain. They all seem a little bit old-fashioned now. The, the, the settled ideological systems of 2019 and the previous 50 years uh, don't really uh, serve as very good uh, uh, prisms to understand the present world. Uh, so I've had to adapt. I've had to rethink things. The companies I used to love, I now have to be suspicious of. Uh, the, the, the strict public-private binaries that I used to occupy my mind as a kind of uh, famous libertarian influencer, uh, I've, I've had to kind of shelve so I can, so I can deal with the realities on the ground. Uh, little things like, do we know that big, big farm had bought so many governments in the world that they were able to manipulate policy outcomes in the way they have? Maybe a lot of people did know this, you know? I didn't know it, so I've had to adjust. These three years have been the most intellectually exciting years of my life because, because you, just, you, you open your eyes and you have to come to a new understanding and you have to be re ready to make new kind of alliances and new new sort of friends, across cross-disciplinary friends. And, and I'm, I'm sitting over here today at this, at this Brownstone event where you have the 30, 30 of the smartest people I've ever been around. Uh, but ideologically, they're from all over the map. I mean, I, and in fact, it's so diverse that it's actually not very interesting to sit around talking about ideology. We don't do it. We just talk about the, the, the big problems in the world today. And how do we get society back on track? How do we restore human rights? How do we get society and markets functioning again? How do we get back to a world in which the Constitution seems to matter, where the laws uh, uh, can restrain uh, the role of power? These are the kinds of things that I'm curious about. But, but these big ideological issues that occupied so much, so much of my life, uh, they just don't seem to be uh, they don't seem to carry the explanatory power that I thought that they, that they had. They just don't. And that's okay. It's okay. I'm, I'm gl glad to change, glad to improve. Uh, 
But we, the, the world has changed, and we have to adapt our thinking around that. If we're honest with ourselves, and if we want to make sense of the world around us. So it is difficult to explain how this nexus of these different big structures all seem to be working in tandem and, and you know, enthusiastically, I might add. Um, so what is your current understanding of how this happened? It seems as if that there were certain people in, in the ruling class structures that didn't like the access that we were all gaining to information and the freedom of thought that was taking place and the level of communication and, and just uh, the end of the old media, you know, and, and just the way people were reading and being exposed to new ideas and this sort of thing. And... Um, they wanted a they wanted a they wanted a crackdown. They wanted a, to stop it. They wanted more controls. It's it's interesting because you know when radio came along in the um, uh, in the late 1920s and early 1930s, very first thing the government did was create a federal radio commission to to govern its contents. And then when the TV came along, they changed it to the Federal Communications Commission. And then. Um, there were three channels, and that went on for decades, and, and that gradually got deregulated. But with the internet, suddenly you had this information freedom like we've never seen before, and, and some people just didn't like that. But, um, but what happened gradually over 20 years is it seemed as if uh, the biggest players sort of decided that they were going to be the owners of the whole system in cooperation with government. And the lockdowns became that opportunity, as far as I can tell, became that opportunity to test the coordination between the three systems so that they could all thrive and survive and stay dominant forever. And, you know, I, I don't know why I, I used to believe that, um, because it's just simply not true, that, that business always and everywhere has an antagonistic relationship with government. I, I think that's maybe something libertarian ideology just sort of presumes at its base, it's just, the problem is it's just quite often not true. Uh, big business works very tightly with, with, with big government. And in fact, if you go back and read the works of Milton Friedman, he said this. Uh, the, the, the worst friends of capitalism, or the biggest enemies of capitalism, big business. He says this in some of his writings, and boy, have we seen that. They don't like competition. They don't like the freedom. They like the tight relationship with the regulators. And... Um, and the system's very complex, right? I mean, it's like this ruling class structure where you can't always tell anymore the difference between uh, for-profit businesses and non-profit organizations and big media players and, and government and administrative bureaucracies. They're all just kind of in a big, uh, nasty stew, and there's a revolving door among all of them. Absolutely. Yeah, a, a good example of this... Uh, it takes place in, in, in the relationship between uh, these pharmaceutical companies and the FDA. Uh, I mean, the, the vaccine was funded by taxpayers. Then the pharmaceutical companies who got, who got granted the emergency use authorization to manufacture them were indemnified against all damages. They're given intellectual property protection over their inventions. It was very funny in the early years of the Biden administration, you know, some ideologues showed up and said, well, you know, we really need to get rid of these, these patents on these, these. This is not fair. If we just get rid of the pharmaceutical patents, then anybody can manufacture them. We can get it through the pandemic a lot faster. Well, that lasted about three hours. <laughs> that proposal never went anywhere. Those patents are secure. So they're indemnified. They've got the patents. They enjoyed all the taxpayer funding. And then they're able to uh, mandate a consumer base, right? When the consumer said, well, I'm not so sure I want this shot because I don't think I need it. Next thing you know, you had vaccine mandates. So the whole system became just, just completely a closed world of, of industrial privilege that's utterly indefensible by any ideological or philosophical position. This is an indefensible position. And you look at the main players in there. The former chairman of the FDA very smoothly became 
uh, a board member of Pfizer, who then very smoothly became a top advisor to the pandemic response. And he occupies all three of these roles. And then a leading commentator on the nightly news about what every, everybody should think about the pandemic and the pandemic response. This is one guy, right? And he works for a, a think tank in Washington. So, you know, this, this is the world in which we live. I mean, these shady characters occupying all these different, you see what I mean about the public-private binaries that we used to just sort of run, run around with in our, in our head, our simple ideological systems? They don't account for this kind of relationship mm. because it's hard to track. It's, mm. it's hard to follow the money, but it's hard to follow the power. Mm -hmm. There's it's a migratory. I think this, uh, I think I'm remembering Mary Harrington, the sort of the swarm accountability that, that she, she described. Like it's, mm -hmm. it's not clear really even who's in charge yeah. in the end. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it's just been especially frustrating because these days, uh, now that we're sort of post pandemic and post lockdown, everybody wants some accountability. Who did this to us and why? Well, we can't find anybody. There's not anybody willing to step up and say, I did it. It was my decision. You can't find anybody who made a decision to lock down anybody or approved any mandates or, or signed off on the EUA. They were just or, always following the guidance they, or... Yeah, they, right. they're all on committees. And if you ask them individually, they'll say, well, I didn't really, I didn't really want to go along, but you know, everybody else in the committee supported it, so I just kind of went along with them. You know? This is the way everybody is. It's either that, a lack of a unwillingness to take responsibility for anything that happened, or the Fauci defense, which is just amnesia, right? And that, that's a real pandemic <laughs> in Washington today is amnesia. And his deposition, he must have said, I can't recall, you know, more than 200 times. He can't recall anything. He doesn't remember anything. But, you know, I, I, I wrote about this for Epoch, but I, I think it wasn't just that he was trying to avoid responsibility for everything that he did. He was trying to set a model for the culture and for the American people in general. Everybody just forget about it. If you don't recall, then it's like it didn't happen at all. That's what they want us to do. They want us just to forget. A few things I want to talk about. Um, let, let's start with this. You know, this, there's this, I call it this nexus, right, of you have these different big, this different big business, big tech, big pharma, you have big media, you also have big education, yeah. right? Um, and they all seem to be kind of deeply invested yeah. in the same series of ideologies, yeah. okay? Let's, for example, one which is loosely described as woke mm -hmm. or this critical social justice ideology, which involves, you know, uh, critical race theory, queer theory, these different areas. Um, and all sorts of policy associated with that. Then you have, you know, climate change, not talking about whether or not climate change exists, but policies that treat it as an emergency that needs to be dealt with bureaucratically, mm -hmm. urgently, with big incentives and big money. Um, ESG, right, which fits yeah. into this, into both actually of right. these of these areas. And this right. is whole. So, is it these? seemingly these ideological positions that are driving the this superstructure mm -hmm. or is it the superstructure that's using these ideologies to drive its own agendas mm -hmm. or is it something in between uh, well it's it's, it's an interrelationship between the two obviously mm -hmm. i mean you've got you've got these enormously bloated institutions that are way too way too big uh, and they became big over the last uh, 17 years with zero uh, zero interest rates. That that's what subsidized the the ballooning of the healthcare sector and the corporate sector. The, the big tech became way too big because of this. Uh, big media became way too large because of this. We lost the competitiveness that you would have in a natural market economy uh, because of the Federal Reserve policies of zero interest rates. <clears throat> what if, in effect that did was massively distort production structures so that education became just out of control. If you think of a yield curve as uh, the right side is involving uh, long-term, uh, heavily capitalized and speculative ventures, right? Um, and the left side of the yield curve as normal sort of savings uh, and everyday uh, commercial activities, you know. Zero percent interest rates 
made it impossible to profit from the left side of the yield curve mm. and sent uh, capital on a hunt for return. And they found it on the far right side of the yield curve, which be became big tech, big media, big education, big government, all these monstrosities that were out there. And that, was, that started in 2008, right? And it was funny because uh, the Federal Reserve Chairman of the time, uh, ben Bernanke, said, I've got a magic solution to the financial crisis. I'll just do this quantitative easing. And as part of that, we're going to have 0% interest rates, and we're going to have the Federal Reserve paying a lot more than that to keep the deposits in the bank. And it'll be beautiful. All the banks will be fully recapitalized, and then we'll just go on with our lives. And we said, great, OK. And there wasn't any inflation. There seemed to be no downside at all. But this is actually a huge subsidy, basically. That's what you're saying. It was a massive subsidy to everybody who lived on the right side of the yield curve, which is all the beasts that took over the world during the lockdowns, probably for their own survival, really. It's a remarkable story, really. But while, while we slept, while we thought the world was just fine, what was actually happening was a tremendous distortion of the production structures. So education just got completely out of control. The healthcare sector is out of control. Uh, 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 technology became completely consolidated. Media became entirely consolidated. They had all the resources in the world, so they kept hiring more and more people, sucking more of the labor supply over to their side. Everybody's bored out of their minds because they don't have any jobs. We're getting high incomes. So that's when we get ESG suddenly and DEI. And the whole ruling class became captivated by all this nonsense because we had no economic rationality in the system. There wasn't a test. It wasn't being checked anymore. Accountability was gone. Basically. Accountability was gone because the resources were infinite. So they could do whatever they wanted and dream up every kind of crazy thing. This is where woke ideology uh, it was heavily subsidized because, because of this fundamental economic dislocation that was built into the system starting in 2008. Now, it's, t it's difficult for me to talk about this, uh, Jan, because it sounds like there's too many moving pieces, and, and it sounds like an implausible story. Some guy in 2008 brings us 0% interest rates to solve an economic crisis and, and to recapitalize the banking system, and then 17 years later, the whole world's gone insane <laughs> because woke ideology is taking over corporate American education and everything, but that is the actual story. I mean, small changes have potentially calamitous effects down the line. So all of this was going on. And there's a whole generation raised in this world that has never known anything like a rational production structure, a, 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 a normal functioning market economy because of this stupid policy of the Federal Reserve, 0% uh, interest rates. But here's what's fascinating about this story. And I think it has a kind of a, a bitter sweet end. Uh, Finally, with the pandemic response, we got once again quantitative easing, but this time they didn't lock it away in the mattresses or in the cold storage or in the banks. It's suddenly hot on the street. The effect was inflation. Now you've got the Fed panicked. The only thing they can do now is reverse this long policy of 0% interest rates. So they started doing it. And they're rising, they're rising like crazy. And the consequence has been to like reverse this whole pattern that dates all the way back to 2008 of the massive subsidies going to the right side of the yield curve. And now everything is gradually shifting to the left side of the yield curve, which is why you can go to your bank now and save money and make money at the same time. We haven't been able to do that since 2008. You can buy a CD that earns 5 and 6 and 7%. So you've got capital now losing interest in and the right side of the yield curve with all the speculative investments and the big media and, and, and big tech and, all, and, and the, the overproduction and the oversupply of labor on that side, and everything's migrating now back to normalcy. And, and, and with that, we're, we're seeing a decline of interest in woke ideology and DEI and ESG and all these things because they're not, not proving profitable in this new normal world of rising interest rates. Mm. It's fascinating, isn't it? Mm. How, how a change in monetary policy can, can so profoundly affect the philosophical 
uh, and cultural shape of an entire country, if not globe. That's a remarkable thing. But anyway, it's a it's a good change, though. What we're what we're seeing. So it's not just that you're, you can make money by saving money for the first time and and since two thousand eight, but but uh, the slogan "Go woke, go broke" is really coming to life. You know, so so that's why you're seeing. The constant rounds of, of job cuts among big tech. Mm -hmm. Every day the headlines observe. I mean, Mark Zuckerberg just sent out another thousand um, uh, uh, slips to his employees. You're not, you're underperforming. So we're going to get another 10% job cuts at Meta, which is is great. The great paradigm here happened with with Musk when he took over Twitter, mm -hmm. right? So over a, a series of months, he seemed to have fired four out of five employees. Because this was my thinking. I was just thinking people <laughs> noticed that what he did and thought, hey, we're, we're o clearly overbloated here. But you're saying there's something much bigger going on. There's right? something much bigger yeah. going on. And he served as a model for the entire corporate sector in this country and even around the world. People know it's coming. Uh, there's going to be a, a, a gradual euthanasia of the overclass. Uh, in, in the corporate and media sector. It's already taking place, and it's going to get more intense, and it's good. But euthanasia, you mean firing, right? Sorry. Okay. <laughs> uh, you know, it's funny because John Maynard Keynes used to use the word euthanasia uh, to describe uh, sort of the decapitalization of a certain class. So, so I didn't mean killing, I meant decapitalization of the overclass. That's what's happening right now. And it's, it's a very interesting thing to watch it unfold, especially since I saw it starting to happen a year ago. And I was writing about this for Epoch. These people are toast. I mean, they're they going to lose. Uh, I don't care what your credentials are. Your six-figure uh, salary for doing nothing and Zooming at home is coming to an end sooner rather than later. And I kept talking about this tremendous uh, disturbance that's going to happen in labor markets. Now we're seeing it all unfold. So there's been nothing surprising to me about it, but still very interesting. And it's fun to describe. Well, this so it's really interesting, too, because part of this these last few years also has been the revelation to much of the population that the of the power that these ideological positions had and how entrenched they'd become in these this nexus of these big structures right, right? right. so it's right. so the, it's kind of both of these things are functioning at the same time right. so there's actually kind of an accelerant yeah. to the realization that, hey, something went really wrong here. Some, a lot of things went really wrong. Um, and I have to tell you, that, that's, you, we're talking about the ways of, in which I've sort of lost my naivety over the last several years. I thought woke ideology would say trapped in the universities among these eggheady, tenured professors you know, saying nonsense to a bunch of incredulous students. But then once they got out into the free market, they would just dispense with all the stuff and, and forget about it, like, like good students should, right? <laughs> that didn't happen. It bled out of academy and bled into all the institutions, into the corporate boardrooms and into the investment stock por portfolios, into government, into media. It, it became just like the spreading cancer, just and it just happened so fast. And it happened because of the 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 industrial um, misalignment of the corporate sector uh, due to the uh, distortion of, of interest rates. If you keep hammering at yeah. an idea, right, yeah, there's some, yeah. some of us are susceptible. Yeah. It was remarkable to me during the, during the lockdown period and, and over the last three years how many people bought into the whole narrative simply because they felt like it gave them some meaning to their life. It was something to believe. And who didn't go along with it? You know, who are the most reliably dissident groups in this country? They all came out of religious communities, um, all of them. So the Hasidim in New York just went on with their lives. They still had their weddings and their funerals. They said, we're not going to let your crazy pandemic plans interrupt our, 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 the liturgy that governs our life. Our rituals are everything to our, our faith is everything to us. And the Amish were the same. And then if you're same reports about some Mormon communities, and later the evangelicals said, well, this is dumb. We're not going to be told we can't go to church in Easter. So it was the religious communities that and the traditional Catholics, too. Uh, mainline churches didn't fare so well, but the, the strong believers did great. Uh, and I suppose you could say that's because they had a stronger sense of meaning in their heart 
and their soul and their lives that, that gives them a driving purpose. And the propaganda apparatus that couldn't invade that, that sacred space. But if, if, but if you've been emptied out entirely and you don't have any sense of purpose or meaning or you don't know why you're here, you know, you don't have anything to live for really that's, that you truly believe, um, then you're vulnerable. And we saw that play itself out over the last three years. So I wrote this in Epoch the other day. <laughs> you know, I'm looking at this. It's undeniable that the people who fared best during, these during the pandemic years were the, were the strong believers. And they, they fared the best. And what that tells me, if you want to protect yourself from, from government propaganda, from being manipulated by, by big media and big tech and, and bad, ideolo weird ideological systems that are floating all around you, you need to get faith. You need to start believing in something. Uh, Joseph Schumpeter wrote a book called Capitalism, Socialism, and Democracy in 1945. And he said in that book that prosperity uh, it can be very dangerous uh, because it can detach us from, the, uh, from an intellectual awareness of where the wealth comes from. It all just begins to see, it seems to be automatic, you know? And we're just entitled. And an, ent an entitled, uh, 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 prosperous people who have lost any connection to what makes wealth, or where it comes from, or how it's related to, to work and enterprise and all this kind of thing. The, the more detached you become from, from real work, uh, the more you take it for granted, and the more you're, you t you're tempted to, to be drawn to exotic ideologies that are actually destructive of that wealth and that prosperity. So he predicted this in 1945, and his prediction was that capitalism was doomed because it was too successful. And we were getting ever more detached from the mechanisms that, that made the wealth possible in the first place. And so that was one of the first books I revisited after, after the lockdowns, because I thought, wow, here it is. Here it is. You know, when you've got a third of, of the workforce that believes it's entitled to stay home and stay safe and still earn a very high income doing almost nothing, something's gone very, very wrong. Now, that, that couldn't have happened 20 years ago, but, but by 2020, we had basically a third of the workforce that was in a position to do that, to shove one third of the workforce was able to shove another third of the workforce in front of the virus and just use them as fodder uh, to obtain herd immunity and otherwise just live high, high in the hog. Well, it was, and, it was and, cool. and seemingly yeah. without really even acknowledging that those people existed. Oh, I right? know. Oh, I know. Right. I mean, I, I mentioned this, I think, to you before, but, you know, the New York Times every day would give you, would, would give you instructions in this newspaper to stay home and get your meals delivered without any awareness that, that, uh, <laughs> that somebody had to actually deliver that. And it certainly wasn't readers of the New York Times. We've often, you know, discussed the, I guess, the hope or the the, the the possibility that exists in all of this terrible, all of these terrible things that have happened. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, this whole realm of, you know, the, the the sort of the capital kind of shifting to the little guy. Basically, that's what the left side of the curve is, right? Yes, this yes. is this is a very compelling. Yes. Narrative for me. Uh, uh, yeah, you're, you're, I, I, I want to believe it. I yeah. want to believe it. Um, and then at the same time, you know, there's been, you know, not only have some of the the strength of some of these ideologies been exposed, but just a lot of the systemic corruption that has been metastasizing over decades, and this influence and all this has also been exposed. Yeah. And you know, there's just all of this very interesting development of parallel structures, whether it's, you know, media or, or whatnot happening. It's a, there's, so there is a kind of a renaissance of, amidst a very, very difficult, difficult situation. Yeah, I, right? you know, for three years I've wanted my optimism to come back and I kept asking the question, how am I going to get my hope back? Where is the happy Jeffrey Tucker going to come back? I want to meet that guy again. I want to, I want to, I want to be that guy again. I think it's happening. Now, because I'm starting to see this renaissance take place. And it's taking place in all sectors. We've lost such trust in all these old institutions that so completely and utterly failed us over the last three years. And 
the human personality says, I, I'm not going to give up. I'm going to invent. I'm going to create. I'm going to live a new day. I'm going to build something new. And we're seeing that take place. And you know, I'm sitting here at Brownstone, so I get, I have con communications with all these sectors. You know, the, uh, whether it's the, this, the colleges or the, the private schools, the homeschool families, the new churches that have started, the new religious communities that were disgusted that their old religious communities, you know, shut down and went along. They're, they're starting new ones. The, the demographic. Uh, changes, you know, moving out of blue states to red states. That, that's a big change of the recapitalization of Texas and Florida relative to these other, other uh, places. But the, the new media that's coming along, I mean, the Substack revolution is something astounding to watch. So we're seeing this kind of dramatic change. All the institutions that failed us during the pandemic period are kind of been revealed to be uh, untruthful and rutted and are now being gradually replaced by all of these new institutions. You call them parallel structures, but, but they exist in every area of life, uh, even with medicine now. You know, I mean, we're, we're at this conference today with all sorts of medical doctors that have started new associations to talk frankly and truthfully to people about, about matters of health. When's the last time we've had any access to that? In decades, right? But, uh, but it's happened in every, every area of life. I feel this way with Brownstone. I mean, what are we doing here? We're, we're really creating an interdisciplinary societies, uh, a society of interdisciplinary truth, right? We're bringing medical experts together with public health experts, with, uh, with lawyers and philosophers and historians and economists and shoving them all into one room and saying, why don't we figure out what's going on? And, and the odd and journalist. Teach, yes, and the odd journalist, that's right. And, and we're, we're teaching each other and learning from each other to try to come up with uh, new terms of engagement in the world and to contribute to the, to the renaissance. And that renaissance really is happening. And it's a tribute to the, you know, the, the, the will to survive, you know, the, the, a tribute to the, the human personality that's looking to the future. I'm, we are not going to live this way. The schooling aspect of this thing is so remarkable to me. And that is a story in itself. They shut down the public schools. It was a gigantic error, even from their point of view, because the crown jewel, the progressivism, the public schools were revealed to have completely failed when they were needed most. Children sent home, and that meant people had to leave the workforce. And so, the, and the, so moms and dads sat down with their kids you know, during the pandemic lockdowns and said, well, let's see what you're studying in school. And then they discovered what they were studying in school and they didn't like it at all. <laughs> so they got active in their schools or they decided to continue to homeschool. And then uh, they put them in private schools. Uh, we have seen the most dramatical, uh, dramatic educational upheaval. Uh, some researchers out of Stanford uh, have examined what happened to the kids during the pandemic lockdowns. And no matter how much they, uh, they rotate the data around, they cannot account for at least 230,000 students who used to be on the rolls that are no longer there. They're gone. All right. Where are they? Well, I tell you, we don't know. But one thing that's easy to speculation here is people just continued to homeschool and decided they weren't even going to bother to report it to the local school board because they're fed up, fed up with the system. They're just going to do their own thing now. I think that's good. I mean, it's, it's revolutionary. Uh, but this is affecting every sector of society. Uh, uh, so these are exciting times, actually, to be alive. And it's, it's times when regular people can make a difference. They can make a difference, and now they know that they must. Right? Three years ago, lots of people didn't know that they had to make a difference, that there was something to do, that there were new institutions to found, new civic associations, new clubs, new political activist organizations, new industry groups. Uh, they didn't know that they had a job, but now they know, and they're acting, and it's glorious. People, th the loss of trust can be a disastrous thing, but it can also be a good thing. If you lose trust in people that don't 
deserve your trust in the first place, that's probably good. So we're creating all of these new institutions. And it's beautiful. I mean, I think about the role of Brownstone in this. I mean, just to be absolutely frank with you about this and blunt, the Washington Research Institutes and think tanks and nonprofits flopped. They failed us. Not some, all. They weren't there. They couldn't account for what was happening to the world. They shut up. They were so risk averse and so protective of their power and their privilege and their money and their status uh, that they, they didn't speak uh, uh, truthfully to us when we needed them the most. So what do we do? Well, we start something new. And those new things are dedicated to speaking truthfully in light of our times. And it's true, we're undercapitalized, right? I mean, they've, they've still got all the money. We have none. But I tell you what, eventually the money is going to follow the passion. And the passion today is all on the side of those people who are trying to reconstruct what we used to call the free and civilized society. That's where all the passion is. Yeah, and I, and I think that, that some of these institutions, well, I even see a few of them that have switched gears yeah, and they're gonna try, to, uh, gonna try to do the same thing, so we'll see. Well, but you know, the thing yeah. is, John, we know, we have a, a record now. I mean, there's, that's one great thing about the internet, right? And we know who spoke out and who didn't. We know where people were. We know what, what media sources performed well during the, during the pandemic years and which ones flopped. We know. And, and what, who said what to whom and what all the think tanks. So we have a complete records of all this kind of stuff. So, um, and, you know, so <clears throat> it really matters if when you're needed the most, you fail to step up and show courage and bravery and tell the truth. That doesn't say good things about you as an institution. You can't mean so you can't be trusted the next time. Uh, it's just true. So these new structures, these parallel structures, uh, I, they are going to be inherently more trustworthy than, than that which they're replacing. This replacement period, I don't know how long is it going to go on. It's going to go on five, 10 years, maybe 50. I don't know. But I do see uh, the birth of a, of a kind of a new vigor for the cause of freedom and human rights and, and, a, and a kind of a bottom-up energy that, that this, this world belongs to us and we're not gonna let them take it from us and control us forever. It's not gonna work like that. Well, so I'm, I'm hearing everything yeah. you're saying, but another thing that was revealed, and as we finish up, I just yeah. wanna kind of touch on this, yeah, sure. right? I wanna believe everything you're saying, and I do to some extent, but what was also revealed was how incredibly powerful, not just the ability to censor certain types of informations mm -hmm. of this superstructure mm -hmm. are, but also the ability to create the perception of consensus around certain ideas mm -hmm. to the point where even today, there's significant swaths of the population that simply don't realize some things which yeah. are you know, kind of staring them in the face. Mm -hmm. yeah. We could go, I, I don't need to go, I don't need to go into details, yeah. but, but that still exists. And even, you know, it might not exist in Twitter anymore, mm -hmm. you know, although there's still people that are saying there's some, you know, they're coming up, they're seeing issues, right? Mm -hmm. But, you know, these, these structures exist. So, so this freedom that you're describing, yeah. this opportunity, this connectivity, there is some kind of barrier here. Uh, there is, and, and it's gigantic and it's growing. So we've got a real competition between freedom and control. And, it's, and I tell you what I'm, I'm really not trying to do is repeat the mistakes of my past, where I became overly optimistic and just thinking that progress was somehow baked into the structure of the world and it's going to happen and we're just all along for the ride. Like, I don't believe that anymore. But what I do believe is that with, with enough passion and conviction and hard work and determination that we can make a difference. I do believe that. And, and uh, I have to believe that. And actually, I've seen beautiful things happen over just the last 12 months. 
I mean, truly, on my inbox is flooded with communications from new organizations, new civic associations, new clubs. I don't believe there's any final stage to history. I think maybe I used to believe that there was. I see it differently now. I see it more through the eyes of David Hume rather than Frederick Hegel, you know? It's an ongoing struggle. It's a long narrative. And freedom is never finally secure. It's something you have to fight for, all of us, in our lives. All of us and every generation. We have to fight for it. That's just what has to happen. We're not along, we, we cannot pretend to just be along for the ride anymore. That is the lesson. We all have to throw ourselves into the great battle for the good life, for human rights, for our freedoms, for civilization. That is our task for each of us. It's the most urgent task. It's been the task we've been given. We know that now. If you don't know that, you haven't been paying attention. It's our job. It's our job, and we're going to do it our next, the rest of our lives. We have to teach our children to do it too, and they have to teach their children to do it also. That's the way you save freedom. That's how you prolong civilization. That's how you build and keep good societies. Well, Jeffrey Tucker, it's such a pleasure to have you on again. Thank you, Jan, for having me. Thank you all for joining Jeffrey Tucker and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kelleck.